I definitely had a nudge from the judge, as I yeah. like to say, uh, <laughs> as a kid, you know. Uh, but what happened was something wild happened to me when I was 17, when I finally got it, because I was in and out of rehab a few times and boys home and stuff like that. And, but when I was uh, just about 17, I was in court one day and I was getting in big trouble because I had just, you know, my house got raided. I got caught with all this stuff and it was just out of my mind. And I remember getting away with it one more time. And I remember saying, I don't think you understand or have the right information, but if I leave here today, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt myself for someone else. And that wasn't me talking, Nate. You have to understand wow. it was something else. And so I asked for help. Welcome back to the Sobriety Diaries, friends. I'm your host, Nate Kelly, best-selling author and podcast producer, but most importantly, a recovering alcoholic eight years from my last drink. I am so grateful to be bringing you these powerful stories of recovery told by you, those who live them. If you're joining us for the first time, check out more information at thesobrietydiaries.com and make sure to share the podcast with one person in your life who may need it today. You never know what they may need to hear. And with that, let's open the diary on episode 105 of The Sobriety Diaries. Welcome back to The Sobriety Diaries, friends. We're talking to Ronnie Marmo today. I'm so excited to chat about the new project that is uh, inspired by Bill W. and Dr. Bob. You were introduced to AA at age 17, which I'm always fascinated about folks who go in at, at such an early age. But uh, let's dive into things. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries, Ronnie Marmo. How are you today? Good. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yes. So you are in Chicago, correct? I am. I'm in Chicago. And uh it's been great. The weather's beautiful. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 I really feel like it's my second home. And so I'm so happy to be back. And I, it's, I'm always so, everyone welcomes me with such, you know, open arms here. So I love it here. That's awesome. You're originally from New York, right? So East Coast guy. Yeah, I'm an East Coast guy, a New Yorker originally, then New Jersey most of my life. And I've been in LA probably uh, 24 years now. Oof. That's a long time, so, uh, but I'm still a New Yorker, you know? Right. That never, you can take him out of the city, right? But not the, the city out of the guy. You got it. <laughs> well, I usually like to start with a bit of your own personal journey and, and kind of understand how we got to you seeking a path to recovery or maybe being uh, led to a path of recovery. So why don't we start with a bit of your own story, uh, however you like to frame it, and so we can understand a bit of, of how we got to where we are today. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was a kid, I was, um, the, the long and the short of it is my dad left when I was 11, left the family. My mother went from being a little Italian housewife to working three jobs, and so I went from ultra supervision to no supervision overnight. And she was too proud to take any assistance from the government, from the city. She's like, we don't do that. I'm like, okay. So, you know what I, you know, so basically I went from having her around all the time to literally hardly ever seeing her because she was working and working. And so the people on the street, the kids on the street corner who were four or five years older than me became my heroes. And that's, that's who I went to with all the questions, you know? Uh, 
And so, and that's, that's not a good formula. So that went on and through my teenage years early, uh, I was introduced to drugs and alcohol pretty quickly. And uh, they'd say, oh, tell Ronnie to go steal the, the pack of cigarettes from 7-Eleven and we'll give him a drink. And I'm like 12, you know? And so I was that guy and that kid, and I was so happy to just be included, right? So what I would do is I'd get all this information from these 16-year-olds, and I'd go back to the 12-year-olds, and I look like a hero. They're like, how do you know all yes. this information? You know, <laughs> I was the leader of those kids when I was getting the info from my brother's friends, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I quickly uh, found drugs and alcohol really quick, and, and quite honestly, because I, you know, maybe I was mourning my dad leaving and different things. I couldn't quite put my finger on it now, but you know, being a grown man and lots of therapy and recovery, I now understand what that was about. And what it was, was trying to fill this hole in my gut with anything I could get my hands on, you know? And so, so that's how it happened, you know, and alcohol was always part of my story, but it was never the focus. It was more about drugs and so alcohol came every day with the package but I was seeking out drugs and then I would try to drink to bring myself down and, and crack was running wild in, in the eighties. And so thank God in some ways for crack, cause it brought me to my knees pretty quick, you know? And so I'm very blessed. I went to rehab a couple of times. 17 was when it finally took, but I had been to rehab earlier than that. And and was that sort of, you came to a realization or was there, legalities or family intervention i definitely had a nudge from the judge as i yeah. like to say uh, <laughs> as a kid you know uh but what happened was something wild happened to me when i was 17 when i finally got it because i was in and out of rehab a few times and boys home and stuff like that but when i was uh just about 17 i was in court one day and i was getting in big trouble because i had just you know my house got raided. I got caught with all this stuff and it was just out of my mind. And I remember getting away with it one more time. And I remember saying the judge who I had every time, he wasn't in, he was out sick. And so I had this other judge, this young woman. And I remember somehow she didn't have my information. And she said, uh, okay, a year probation, whatever she gave me, it was silly, whatever it was. So I start walking out and I, and I had what I like to leave as a spiritual awakening. I, I turned back to her and I said, I don't think you understand or have the right information, but if I leave here today, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt myself for someone else. I'm in, a, I'm in, I need help. And so, and that wasn't me talking to you. have to understand wow. it was something. Else and so I asked for help as I was walking out of court. My little Italian mother was like, get out of it. What are you crazy? Come on, let's go yeah. home. You know? And I'm like, and it just came out of my mouth. It flew out of my mouth. And so the judge came around and hugged me. And then we, she ended up finding a bed for me, and I ended up in this uh, two-month uh, youth rehab called New Hope. Uh, when we were kids, we called it No Hope because we were up now, but it was New Hope. And I stayed there two months, and for 59 days, I was mad and wanted to leave. And on the 60th day, I, I hung on to their leg and said, I, I don't want to leave. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so that was the beginning of my journey. And... Uh, you know, obviously that's the short version, but it, it definitely was, uh, I never thought I would live past 20. So it was, you know, I did everything fast and hard, you know. It's, it's so powerful to look back at those 
a moment now that we can recognize, right, as something greater than ourselves. But when we're in it, we don't necessarily understand, I think, the, I didn't at least, the uh, powerful nature or, or how it could really change the course of our lives. I love to hear those, those little, uh, you know, things that happen along the way, those breadcrumbs that can showcase, you know, that uh, yeah. we're kind of in the right place at the right time. Yeah, something, you know, it's, some people call it God shots. I know God is a, tr is a trigger word for some, and I understand that. Raise the Catholic, you know. Uh, you know, even if you don't want to be Catholic, you're still Catholic. It's just the way it goes. You're Catholic for life. You're kind of, you know, I don't mean to offend anyone, but I was sure. an the boy. I did all this stuff. You know, there was a great line from Lenny Bruce, who I'm sure we'll yes. But, yes. but he said, you know, every he said this in the 60s. Every day people are leaving the church and finding God. And uh, and that was really controversial then, but I understand what he meant. And so, you know, I, I call it what you want, but something greater than myself blurted out the fact that I needed help because my best thinking would not have asked for him. Great segue, because I know you're bringing back your show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a comedian. I'm Lenny Bruce. Uh, and let's talk about kind of the transition to L.A., you know, once you kind of started seeing success and money and people tend to be a yes man around you when when that happens with Lonnie Bruce and, and kind of your journey in, in Hollywood as well. It's so funny to say people tend to be a yes man. You know, no one ever brings that up, but it's true. You know, you have to surround yourself with people to tell you the truth. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, often people have ulterior motives for things and whether they they mean to or not we're human it's it's the human condition you know but uh you know Lenny Bruce was uh it's something that I wrote six years ago I put it on in Los Angeles Joe Montaigne my mentor and my friend he directed it and um what I thought would be a six-week run ended up running for a year and a half and so it was wild. I mean, it was wild. And so we were like, okay, there's something here. The reviews critics pick in the LA Times and all the great papers. Uh, lots of celebrities were coming by. Billy Crystal, Barry Levinson, Patti LuPone, just lots. Wow. No, there was a whole, it's crazy the amount of people who wanted to see this show. Yeah. So once that happened, we were like, okay, maybe we have something here. So let's go to New York. Went to New York for nine months. Same thing. Big hit. Lots of great people showed up. And then we said, well, then we have to go to Chicago for two reasons. One, it's the most savvy theater town in the world. Not, you know, New Yorkers might get mad at me for saying that. <laughs> uh, Chicago folks know their theater, but also Joe's from here. Mm. And so we wanted to bring the show back and share it with his, his people. And so we came back, ran for six months, huge hit. And then a little pandemic happened, shut us down. We had another six month run kind of in the middle of the pandemic. And now I'm here for the fourth time. And so it was proposed to me to bring Lenny back because people loved it in Chicago, but also to do the Bill W and Dr. Bob. And I play Bill Wilson and do them both in rep in the same weekend, which is a little insane. Yeah. But I was like, yeah, I'm up for the challenge. And uh, so we've been on a national tour for Lenny now for about three years, but we're going to sit down here for a couple of months and do the show again. And also do Bill W. So it's an exciting time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Man, you, you're you're a busy man, which I tend to like. It keeps me out of trouble. Seeing it in the literature and, and seeing it in the rooms and how it inspires people and, and changes their lives. What about the interaction or the the story about Bill W. and Dr. Bob specifically kind of inspired you to to be a part of bringing it to the stage? Well, but I'd say about 24, 25 years ago, I was handed the script. Somebody said to me, I want you to play the, this role of Billy D, the third alcoholic. And I was young and I, and I wanted to do it. I was already sober, but I couldn't do it. Something was, I was had a conflict. I couldn't do it, but I always held the script in my back pocket. And then for years I had it. And then 20 years ago, I was like, I want to put this show on. But I was also concerned because, you know, the traditions in AA, I don't want to, I don't want to take advantage of that and promote it. So I talked it through with my sponsor. We did a lot of writing on it and I made a decision. You know what? I'm going to put it out there and let's see what happens. And boy, before, it wasn't long before hundreds of people came to the show and said, I couldn't stay sober before or clean, but now I can. This simplified the whole thing for me. It was the greatest meeting I've ever been with Bill and Bob, you know. And so it went from me going, well, should I do this? To, I feel like it's my responsibility to do it at this point. And, and I've done it five times in L.A. over 20 years. And it's the most magical thing. I, I, I can't put it into words. I hope you get to see it. I mean, I mean it's, it's... I hope that I do, too. A little research. And it really looks powerful. And I can, you know, relate to kind of that struggle in the beginning. I had this same back and forth when deciding to start this show and, you know, considering the traditions and is, is, you know, just really looking at my motives for doing it. And my motives truly are to help others share their story and hopes of helping others who are still struggling. So as long as I know the motives behind it, you know, were sincere, then, then that's kind of what gave me the green the green light to move forward so absolutely there is a um you know bill wilson i heard him in a speaker tape once say never be too anonymous where you can't help someone right really stuck to me and then i found this quote the other day that came out on grapevine it said it's from bill wilson from the language of the heart it said it should be the privilege even the right of each individual or group to handle anonymity as they wish each individual will have to decide where he ought to draw the line how far he ought to carry the principle in his own affairs, how far he may go in dropping his own anonymity without injury to Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. Wow, that says it all. And so when Bill said that, I said, okay, well then I guess I can do the show if it's up to me. And obviously, and I understand the spirit of the anonymous program. One, you know, 1935. Right. It was very taboo to, I mean, even to, some people still see it that way, but but the other reason is, is we didn't want one individual to represent the program. You know, they come to AA, they go drink again. Suddenly people think the program doesn't work. But that's, but you know, this is, this is a program for people who want it, not need it. Because otherwise we'd have our, our meetings at Wrigley Stadium. Every <laughs> right. You know, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, that, that brings up a, a great point. I'd love to get your opinion on the fact that really nothing has changed since the 30s. Now, do you think there is room to to bring some of the traditions and, and literature into a more modern capacity? Or do you think we, we stick with 
how it originated and keep things the same forever. As I get more sober, I mean more sober, um, I'm more intrigued by the old literature. I'm more attracted to it now that I'm actually like really, I'd say the last five years of my sobriety and I'm 33 years sober, the last five years of my sobriety has been my best five years for some reason. And um, not for some reason, because I'm doing the work. Yeah, yeah. Like, like maniac. Um, I'm really doing the work. But I do think, so I think the old literature should not be touched. But I do think it's okay to introduce new literature to simplify things a bit. And so, because sometimes when you pick up the big book, I think it's magic. But I also think some of the old language could get in the way right. of, of a, sim a simple modern creature who maybe not doesn't see it. And that's why I think the play is so special because it comes to life. It's like a pop-up book and people go, Oh, and it simplifies it down to, you know, Bill and Bob found each other and then they found Billy D and off we go. I mean, it's more than that, but yeah, that's a great point. And, and it affords sort of that opportunity to bring it to other audiences. Yes. I love that. And what's cool about the play, too, is you're introduced to the, the uh, beginning of Al-Anon and the origin story of that, and you see the magic of that. And it's just, there's so many, you know, when, when you're sober, when you speak at a meeting, you know, you see all the heads nod, and that means everybody's uh, identifying. The whole play, the whole audience is going like, <laughs> their, their heads are nodding, and then you go, yeah. okay. It's resonating. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Are there other relationships or people within the history that we don't perhaps know about that we see in the play or that have an impact on the history of the program? Well, a lot of people knew Ebby Thatcher, yeah. who was Bill's best friend, but I don't know if we knew enough. And Ebby's an important part of this play. You know, Ebby was never considered a founder. Uh, and I think he always kind of was jealous of Bob. Uh, it doesn't come out in the play like this, but I think Abby uh, always, you know, Bill Wilson considered Abby his sponsor until the day he died, even though Abby couldn't stay sober. Hmm. Because Abby brought the message from Dr. Carl Jung about the spiritual awakening he had. He brought it to Bill and Bill wasn't ready to hear it, but eventually he did. And he had his own spiritual awakening. So we learn about Abby Thatcher. We learn about Billy D, the third alcoholic. We learn about Lois Wilson. We learn about Ann Smith quite a bit. Um, and there's some other cool characters too in there uh, that really come to life and and tell show you the, uh, the false starts of the program, trial and error, until they found Billy D. And, and then, you know, Bill has a line in the play. He says, uh, uh, now there's three of us. That makes us a group. Hmm. You know, and then and then off they went looking for just one more to pass it on. You know, wow, that's yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah. You mentioned earlier therapy, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on the importance of, you know, combining therapy or any sort of outside sources, perhaps with the twelve-step program. There, there's more of a modern feel, I guess, now to therapy with texting and mobile online therapy. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts adding that to, to the program. Well, you know, I think therapy is very beneficial. I think, um, and I, I actually, on a separate note, I think it makes me or anyone a better actor and a better artist if you're willing to explore. I do, I always encourage anybody acting who takes my class 
uh, or or just works with me. So you should go to therapy. You'll 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 open yourself up in a way that you know maybe you you didn't know you could. But I think therapy is a key ingredient to the whole thing because if we're not, you know, I'm not the same man I was a year ago, five years ago, and I hope I hope I'm not. You know, that's why sometimes I see online like, oh, you said this 20 years ago. Now you're saying this, and I'm like, if you if I say the same thing as 20 years ago, shame on me. Right. If I'm not learning and growing, then I got a big problem on my hands. Absolutely. So, so I'm a big believer in like, yeah, you know, don't show me the old, old things I said because, man, I gotta keep, I gotta keep evolving as a human. I, you know, I haven't found my best day yet, but I'm trying. And so, so I think therapy is key. I think texting and zooming, it's hard. You know, it's like Zoom. I guess is a little easier. It's really. I know texting is the new way, but I'm kind of an old school guy. I'd rather get on the phone with you. Yeah. But it saved my life therapy and 12 steps as well. And 12 steps are there for anybody who wants to work them. But I think it's vital that you find a sponsor, somebody who will take you through them in a really thorough way. And uh, because they could be life-changing. I, I haven't met a human being alive that couldn't benefit from the 12-step structure and just have a guide to living. I mean, and I don't mean alcoholic, I mean anyone. So. Uh, I think that was my biggest takeaway, you know, stopping drinking aside, but really just learning how to be a productive person and think about other people and not just myself and provide value to those around me. Um, things that I had no idea how to accomplish prior to stepping into those rooms. I agree. I agree. And here's the thing. I was in these rooms for a long time. One of the struggles I had was that I got sober so young that I didn't think the steps really applied to me for a long time. And I, I suffered. I, dare I say, I had my hardest days uh, without a drink in sobriety than I did with a drink because I, you know, there's nothing worse than being spiritually and emotionally sick. And, and then you have nothing to medicate. See, when we had alcohol and drugs or gambling or women or blah, 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 it goes on and on. You, you have the opportunity to medicate and try to fill that hole in your gut. But it wasn't until I, I suffered so much in the program of my own doing, the program's available, it was my own doing, that that's when I finally made a change and really reaped the benefits of true sobriety. We hear that like the white, the white knuckling or just holding on and, and just not drinking versus sobriety. I had lots of white knuckles. First, first two decades of my sobriety, there were periods I did okay. And there were periods, and there were, you know, five, six, seven years at a time that I was white knuckling and just like nothing changed except I put down the drink. My behavior was crap and it was, you know, just trying to get out of myself and not sit still long enough where I might actually, you know, have to deal with anything. <laughs> right. I mean? Ronnie, I was going to ask if, if you're still a part of a, a home group or being in different cities is, does that make it more difficult? Do you still get to in-person meetings? What does your kind of daily routine or weekly routine look like? Yeah, it, it is tough, but I do have a home group in LA, and so I'm, I'm very involved. I try to I try to hit a, a few meetings a week. Lately, Zoom has been a little easier. Yeah. Um, but I do, you know, it's not like being in a home group. Also, my sponsor is is probably a person that 
walks the walk more than any other human I've ever met in this program. And so he and I are close and we talk and, uh, but he also, it's cool. My sponsor has two meetings a week, uh, that are not AA specifically, but we read, uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount from Emmett Fox. And that's the bo- that's the book that Bill and Bob relied on before they wrote the big book. And so we, we really explore Emmett Fox and we have a group of us that I uh, used to do it in person. Now it's on zoom. We, we're able to widen the net of who can show up. Right. Uh, but we read a uh, sermon on the Mount every Saturday and we discuss, you know, we'll read a paragraph and sometimes that takes up the whole meeting, the discussion. Sometimes we get through a chapter and, uh, and it's, uh, so it's not just AA for me. It's, it's a constant exploration of whatever makes me grow as, as, as a human being, you know, and, uh, Try, That's you know, what it's about. Yeah, trying to find a spiritual connection as opposed to just, you know, we all suffer from the human experience, experiment, but we're, you know, seek to be spiritual people and to, you know, when you said early on, you said, when I stop thinking about myself, I find that my life is way better when I put my energy on someone else. Mm. And I get uh, wrapped up in my own bullshit, you know. Whereas I can, if I can step outside of that and focus on other people, all that seem that nonsense seems to, to fall away. Oh yeah. I think I'm so important. And then I realize like it's ridiculous, you know, as an actor, I'm certainly in a position where people come to see you do the thing and it's flattering and it feels good. And, uh, but the truth is like, if I'm not, if I don't have the, I'm of service to Lenny, I'm of service to Bill and Bob, I'm of service to the community. If I start thinking it's about me, first of all, I'm going to fall flat on my face in my performance because I will not be, uh, I will not be working from that, that vulnerable place. Uh, but I, but I also, you know, it's time to put it down once I think, you know, they're coming to see me. You know? Well said. <laughs> Ronnie, I like to leave our listeners with some actionable items or or some tangible items that we can provide for them today. So if someone's listening and still struggling, what can you offer them to do today or to put one step in front of the other today? You know, obviously the biggest one and the hardest one sometimes because the phone is 800 pounds uh, is to pick up the phone, ask for help, tell somebody the truth about how you're feeling. Um, you might quickly find that they're also suffering and they need you to open up. That gives them permission to open up. Um, definitely ask for help. Reach out to people. Uh, try to put your pride aside for a few minutes and, and, um, and put your hand out. Um, I like journaling. I like writing a lot. So uh, important. You know, I mean, you get back to the basics of uh, of the program. Don't drink, ask for help, and go to meetings. I mean, that's a good start. You know, I did that for a long time. But then there's other elements like, okay, now I have to grow and change. That's a different thing. But but if, you, if you're at home alone today, you know, and you're struggling, just um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to put your hand out to somebody else. Um, they will be happy to hear from you and uh, they will be relieved. And, and, you know, my old sponsor used to say, you know, you can refund your misery at the door anytime you want. Uh, or, you, you, or, or today could be the first day 
of your new life. So let, let's just do it today. Let's take an hour at a time. Take it a minute at a time. There's a wonderful thing. If anyone finds themselves in real trouble, there's a thing called the Golden Key by Emmett Fox. And if you YouTube it, the Golden Key by Emmett Fox, there's a woman who reads it. And it's pretty magical. Um, and it's very simple. And, you, and her voice sounds funny in the first couple of seconds. You kind of get to kind of just adjust to it and go, okay, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> it saved my life five years ago when I hit my biggest emotional and spiritual bottom. I played it a thousand times a day. And if you're in big trouble, it's called the Golden Key. Read it, key. listen to her. The Golden Key by Emmett Fox. Pick it up, read it over and over and over and over, and it will help lessen your troubles. Great. I will find that and link it in today's show notes. I love resources like that. Thanks for sharing. You got it. It came to me at a really important time. And yeah. Saved, saved my life. Ronnie Marmo, thank you so much for your time. I'm hoping that I can get to Chicago and see the play starring as Bill W and directing the show on stage in Chicago. Also check out I'm Not a Comedian, I'm Lenny Bruce, also on stage in Chicago. What a great conversation. Thanks so much, Ronnie. Thank you. Thank you, Nate, for having me. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Thanks so much for listening today, friends, and downloading our episodes. Hopefully you heard something inspiring today and that resonates with you. For more information and to apply to be a guest on the show, head over to thesobrietydiaries.com or follow us on Instagram at Podcast Revolution Studios. I love chatting with you guys. Check out all of our video episodes at youtube.com slash Nate Kelly. Make sure to subscribe to the show now so you never miss an upload. We're back with new episodes every Wednesday. Goodbye, everyone.